We are in a 40-day season that has traditionally been called Lent, and that comes from an old English word that actually uh, means lengthen, or spring is coming, and the days are getting longer. And uh, so we're in the season of Lent, and Christians have often traditionally used that 40-day period leading up to Easter as a time of uh, fasting, sacrifice, and preparation for the celebration of Resurrection Sunday of Easter. So we are following along with that, and in our sermons uh, through these six weeks, seven weeks including Easter, we are looking at the words of Jesus on the cross. Maybe you're unaware that as Jesus died on the cross, there are seven recorded sayings or seven sentences that Jesus said while he hung on the cross. And we started last week by looking at one of those, and today we will continue on to the second of Jesus' sayings on the cross. So beginning, we're going to repeat a little bit of last week, uh, but Luke chapter 23, I will read for us beginning in verse 32, and we'll go through verse 43 where we see the words that we'll focus on for today, okay? So Luke 23, uh, 32 through 43, follow along with me here. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, as he, if he is Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews." One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we focus our hearts in this season and as we open your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move not just in these moments where we focus our hearts on your word, but as through this entire season, Lord, that you would prepare us through fasting, through sacrifice, through whatever disciplines you lay on our heart to focus upon Jesus, to celebrate Jesus, and to receive the mercy and grace of Jesus each day. Lord, we thank you for uh, this time together. I thank you for these brothers and sisters, for those that uh, are traveling today and this week. Keep them safe for those that are sick, for those that are in the hospital. Lord, give peace, give uh, recovery, bring health. And Lord, we uh, ask these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. 
Amen. So let me ask you a question this morning. What do you think about deathbed conversions? What do you think about deathbed conversions? If you're my age or a generation older than mine, no doubt most of you will remember a man by the name of Theodore Robert Bundy, better known as Ted Bundy. And in the late 1980s, Ted Bundy was convicted of 37 counts of murder and then sentenced in Florida to death by uh, electric chair. And Bundy, uh, as he was on death row, did an interview with Dr. James Dobson that was broadcast, I believe, uh, on ABC, where Dobson interviewed Bundy because uh, this man who had admitted to these murders through a period of five or so years, uh, claimed that while on death row, he had come under conviction uh, for his wrongs and had found forgiveness and freedom uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Dobson interviewed him and talked with him about both his past as well as his newfound uh, alleged faith in Jesus. So what do you think about deathbed conversions? Because today in the passage that we read, we have not a deathbed conversion, but a executed on the cross conversion of a guy who had been sentenced to capital punishment in his day. And we see that as Jesus hangs between these two criminals, one is railing at him, it says, and then the other comes to faith and tells Jesus, remember me. And this, uh, this story in this passage, as I've looked at it this week, is just so wonderful in what it teaches us about the gospel of Jesus and the amazing, extravagant uh, mercy and grace of Jesus. It's shocking. We expect uh, that Jesus would be forgiving. We expect that God would forgive sinners. But this one, Bundy, folks, that lost, folks, that guilty. And as we see here this morning, we'll see that the grace of Jesus um, is both shocking as well as comforting. Shocking as well as comforting. So first of all, uh, as we look at this today, let's first of all look at Jesus and what we see here of Jesus, what we discover about Jesus from this passage and from his words and this story, this interaction with this guilty thief. And we really see a lot of things. It's a surprising amount of things, and I don't have time to go into each one of them adequately here, but quickly, uh, at least five things that we can see from this passage. We see, first of all, his humanity, Jesus' humanity, his veracity, his divinity, his authority, and his relationality. And that is a word, relationality, okay? Uh, but first of all, uh, what may not be... Uh, kind of uh, not explicit, but it's certainly implied here. The first thing is that we see Jesus' humanity. 
And this is actually astounding because here is the Son of God, eternal God, Jesus the Son, dying as human. Now, Jews couldn't believe this. Many of them never did believe this. And Muslims today cannot imagine that God would become human, much less become human and die a criminal's death. This is astounding then as well as today. But what we see on the cross, what we see these weeks, is that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, takes on flesh. And it's not just some costume. It's the real deal. He is real flesh and blood, so much so that he bleeds and he dies. He is truly God and truly man. God becomes man in Jesus. Secondly, we see his veracity. Where do I get that? Veracity meaning truthfulness. And m many of you will remember those, those statements of Jesus in the gospel where if you read the old King James Version, it says, verily, verily, right? Or uh, in the more modern translations, truly, truly, I say to you. And here we just have one verily or one truly. The Greek word translated is the word amen, when we say amen, we're saying truth. Amen, according to God's will. So Jesus is, is hanging on the cross and he is saying truth. Verily, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And think about what Jesus is claiming here. This goes on to his authority and his divinity. Jesus is dying on the cross, hanging on the cross, not because he's a nice guy, or people just thought he was a nice guy, so let's hang him. He is hanging on the cross because he made these claims about, like we saw last week, I forgive them. He's, he's making himself equal with God by offering forgiveness to sinners. And the religious leaders constantly uh, were perplexed and agitated and angered that Jesus would make these crazy claims, like we saw last week, Father, I forgive them. Or, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As Jesus says this, he's making a claim to his divinity. He's exercising an authority. You don't get to forgive people of sins unless you're the one sinned against, right? And Jesus, on the cross, forgiving people, and in his ministry, forgiving people, is making a claim that you've sinned against me, and I forgive you. And here he's saying, truly, I say to you, I can give you eternal life. I can make you be with me in paradise. That is not the claim of just some prophet or good moral teacher. That's the claim of God saying, I can forgive. I can give eternal life. The claims of Jesus are not that of just a good teacher or a good person or a, a moral example. But even as he hangs on the cross, they are the claims of divinity, authority, truthfulness. Finally, his relationality. Where do I get that? And that's this key, key preposition we see here in verse 43. Truly, I say to you, today you will be what? With me. Where? In paradise. And I don't have time to go into this, but paradise harkens back. That's the Greek translation of Eden in the Old Testament. Eden, translated in the Greek Septuagint, is translated paradise. So Jesus is saying, you will be with me in paradise in this new garden, in this heaven, if you will, paradise. But the wonderful, amazing proposition that he's, you will be with me. 
Not just that you'll go to heaven, but you'll be with me. You'll be with God. And this withness of God, if you will, is a theme throughout the scriptures. It's what he's, it's what God has been trying to do in creation earth and with Adam and Eve through the, the whole story of the Bible that God wants according to the scriptures, to be with us. So he creates this garden, and you see in those first chapters of Genesis that God is walking with Adam in the garden. He is he's with Adam. Adam has this perfect relationship with creation and, and, and with God, and God wants to be with him, but then it's broken by sin. And what happens after that? Man continues to rebel against God, but then God brings these ways to come back to his people, and he does it in the Old Testament. How? Primarily centered in this thing called the tabernacle or the temple, and it says it, the, the temple or the tab- tabernacle was going to be the dwelling place of God where he would be with the nation Israel, right? So the witness of God. His spirit comes upon the, the tabernacle and the temple to be with them. And then fast forward all the way to the New Testament where we get this wonderful verse in John's gospel, John 1.14, where it says, we, the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. God in Jesus came to be with us, to be with his people. Again, the witness of God. We beheld his glory. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. He came to be with us. And you see us really dramatically in the gospel of Matthew. Anybody remember how Matthew's gospel starts? It starts with some genealogy, but it gets there at the end of chapter one of Matthew's gospel. It gives us this name for Jesus, the savior who has come and his name, he shall be called from the Old Testament, Isaiah. What is Jesus gonna be called? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, the witness of God. And how does Matthew end his gospel? I love this. Fast forward, thank you, Garrett, all the way to chapter 28, where he gives this great commission to his disciples. And he said, go and make disciples. And then he gives them this wonderful promise. And what's the promise? And behold, I will be with you, even to the ends of the earth, the witness of God. And then what happens in the last book of the Bible? Revelation. God recreates. You get this picture of, it, of eternity future where there's worship. And Revelation chapter 21 says that when, when we get in this new heavens and new earth, there will be no more pain or crying or sorrow or all those things. But it says in verse 4 or 5-ish, somewhere in there, Revelation 21, the dwelling of God will be with them. And God will be their God and they will be his people. The witness of God. The witness you will be with me in paradise. You're going to have all the great circumstances, great vacation, great spring break getaway. But what Jesus is claiming here is that paradise or eternal life, the meaning of humanity is to be with him. And the God of the universe wants to be with us. So he came in Jesus And in Jesus, he dies, but he conquers that death through resurrection. The witness of God, what we see here in Jesus, even even hanging on the cross, is that God is not surprised. God is not removed. God is not powerless for all the tragedies and viruses and wars, 
but he is working his plan. He has always been with his people. And one day in paradise, we will be with him. And for this man, for this thief, this worst of men, will be with Jesus when? Today. I wonder how surprised that guy was, that thief. When he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, oh, I'll remember you. And today, even today, the, the thief was probably like, no way are you going to remember me. And, and today, I don't have to go through purgatory. I don't have to wait a thousand years. I can close my eyes to die and then be in paradise with you. The God of the cross is the God that goes to all lengths, to the greatest of lengths, to take care of our sin problem, our rebellion, so that he can reunite us with him. That's the Jesus that we see here. That's the Jesus that we see on this cross. And what do we see of this thief? What do we learn of this repentant thief who comes to faith out of sheer grace, simple faith by sheer grace? Look at, first of all, the contrast that Luke gives us of the reactions of the other people in the crowd. Beginning at verse 35, you see the reaction of the people is what? Verse 35, the people were standing by watching. The people stood by watching. And at the end of that verse, you see the reaction of the rulers. What are the rulers doing? They're scoffing. The people are standing by watching. The rulers scoffed at Jesus. Verse 36, what's the soldier's reaction in verse 36? The soldiers also mocked him. And then verse 39, dropping down to verse 39, you see this other thief who it says, not just that he kind of whispered, but he railed. He railed at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But verse 40, but this man, this thief on death row, hanging as a convicted criminal, but the other rebuked him, the other thief. The thief rebukes the other thief saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. What do we learn about the thief? What does the thief know about Jesus? Well, first of all, the thief acknowledges, the, the, the thief admits, I'm getting my due. I'm getting my just desserts. I'm getting my just reward. My deeds have gotten me here. But this guy, Jesus, is obviously not like us by the way he speaks, by the way people have spoken about him, by the way he's treating even his murderers. This guy is innocent. So the thief acknowledges two things at least. He acknowledges his own sin and unworthiness and he acknowledges the worthiness or the sinlessness of Jesus, right? Furthermore, he doesn't just say, Jesus, put in a good word for me when you get into the kingdom, but he calls it your kingdom. Remember me in your kingdom. So he's acknowledging not just that Jesus is sinless, 
unworthy of the cross, he's acknowledging he's king. He's got a kingdom. That's an amazing acknowledgement of faith, an amazing amount of theology packed in this guy's statement of belief in Jesus. He acknowledges his guilt. He acknowledges Christ's sinlessness and the fact that he is king of a kingdom. And then he acknowledges faith. He asks Jesus, remember me. That's it. Some of you grew up uh, hearing about the sinner's prayer, right? The sinner's prayer, and there's a few different Southern Baptist versions of it, but you know it, right? Oh, God, I'm a sinner. This is a sinner's prayer. And you see implicitly in this, this acknowledgement of, of, of sin, really explicitly, but then the simple faith, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. That's all he says. And then what? He gets off the tree, he gets off the cross and goes and gets baptized and goes and does a 12-step program and a big, you know, three-year seminary program. And then he dies and goes to paradise. What is he able to do, this thief, this convicted criminal? Nothing. Nothing except I admit and I cry out, Jesus, remember me. It's sheer grace and it's simple faith. That's all. And what this means for the cross, folks, what this means for our salvation is it is all God. It's sheer grace and simple faith. We can do nothing to merit the mercy and grace of Jesus. Just like this guy was totally a recipient of God's mercy and grace. There was nothing he did. There was nothing he could promise to do except Jesus, remember me. And that is the scandal and the beauty of the cross and the Christian gospel. That even deathbed conversions can happen if the person genuinely says, Jesus, remember me. It's shocking, it's scandalous, and it's incredibly comforting if you've made a mess of your life. And some of us have. But some of us haven't. And what does the cross say for those of us, the self-righteous of us? See, the cross speaks to the criminal, but the cross also speaks to the religious leaders and the Pharisees, right? Because the cross says at least two things. The cross says, hey, your sin is so bad, Jesus had to come and pay for it. You may think, you know, hey, I've been pretty good and I haven't done what the other folks in my class have done and I haven't cheated like the other people on my team and I've been faithful to my spouse and yada, yada, yada. But the cross says everybody needs Jesus. Because if you could get to God on your own merit, then Jesus wouldn't have come, right? If you could get to God on your own resume, Jesus wouldn't have had to shed his blood. He would just say, pull up your bootstraps, get to work, and go, do, go fix it. But Christmas says that Jesus had to come to us. God had to come to us. And the cross said Jesus has to pay for our sin. 
We got no resume that can make us worthy. So the cross to the self-righteous Pharisees then and the self-righteous Pharisees among us now says, no, you're not good enough. Jesus had to bleed for you too. And for the rebellious and the unrighteous, the cross says, your sin is bad. It's wicked. Don't be apathetic about it. It's wicked. It cost Jesus his blood. But he loves you so much, he was glad to do it. The cross simultaneously says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. So Tim Keller says it like this. The gospel of the cross tells us we are more sinful and broken than we ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. It's astounding. It's shocking. And it's amazingly comforting. Because you can be with God in paradise by sheer grace and simple faith. As I said last week, there's no sin that I've committed, there's no sin that you've committed that is a higher price than the blood of Jesus on the cross. If you won't accept the grace and mercy of Jesus, you're basically being prideful. <laughs> you're saying my sin is worse than the blood of Jesus to cover it. But he gave his all, so by sheer grace and simple faith, anyone even this guy that had royally messed up his life, even those of us that have royally messed up our lives can just say, Jesus, remember me. So here's the wonderful news. You can totally lose in the world. You can totally lose by the world's standards and win for eternity by simple faith. You can make a royal mess and be forgiven by God's grace. And the contrast of that, Jesus said, Jesus said, you can gain the whole world and what? Forfeit your soul. The cross outs us. It levels us. But it picks us up and says, Jesus loves me so much. He bled for me. And that is life changing. I wonder this morning if you have embraced the extravagant, shocking, amazing mercy and grace of Jesus, even for the worst of sinners, 
the most unlikely, the most heinous, the most sinful. Jesus hangs on the cross for all. Have you not pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, not become a member of a church, not started attending church faithfully, but have you said, Jesus, remember me. I'm a sinner and you are sinless. I've been trying to run my kingdom, but it's your kingdom that I need. Have you, in simple faith like this thief, said, Jesus, remember me? And if you haven't, I invite you to do that right now, this morning. What, a, what better time to say, Jesus, remember me, than the time leading up to the celebration of Easter. And to those of us that have done that, you know, we just return to self-righteousness so quickly. And we remember our guilt and our junk. And the cross of Jesus cries out, today you will be with me. You can be with me in paradise. Even though you've blown it, even if you think you're good enough, you need me, join me. Trust him. I want to give you a moment in the quietness of your own heart just to reflect upon this story, to reflect upon these truths. There's going to be a prayer on the screen if you want to pray that just silently where you're seated. And we will respond to the cross and the grace and mercy of Jesus. And then we will come to the table and be reminded again of his great mercy and grace. Let's pray. What do you think about deathbed conversions? If you can't embrace the plausibility of a deathbed conversion, then that's a pretty good indication that you haven't yet embraced the cross, that you don't yet understand or know the grace and mercy of Jesus. Father God, we 
come to you this morning not worthy. Every one of us absolutely unworthy in our self-righteousness, unworthy in our unrighteousness. And we just thank you, God, for the mercy and grace that you've poured out to us through Jesus. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you convict us of our sin and that you turn our eyes quickly away from ourselves and our sin to the beauty of our Savior who hangs and bleeds for sinners like us. It's in his beautiful name we pray.